Escape Pod 162 June 12, 2008 Today's story, God Juice, by M.K. Hobson Hello and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely. We have a really fun adventure piece for you this week. This is another one I picked up at Wiscon. I heard the first half of it at a live reading by the author, went to her afterwards and said, if the second half of this is as good as the first, I want this story. She sent it to me, it was, and here you go. We present God Juice by M.K. Hobson. Miss Hobson lives in Oregon and has dozens of stories out in markets such as F&SF, Realms of Fantasy, and Sci-Fi.com. She appeared on Escape Pod a couple of years ago with her Chinese buffet horror story Hell Notes, and recently on Podcastle with the haunting Depression-era myth Hotel Astarte and the flash piece Hippocampus. By day, she works as a marketing consultant, but has assured me that she uses her powers for good, not evil. This story first appeared on Polyphony 6 in November 2006, and received a mention in that year's year's best science fiction. The story is read for us by my good friend and indefatigable podcaster, Christiana Ellis. Christiana is the author and narrator of the hit patio books Nina Kimberly the Merciless and the funny new science fiction epic Space Casey, both at patiobooks.com. Her newest podcast is Christiana's Shallow Thoughts, a minute or two each day of weird, funny philosophy. Think of Jack Handy with just a little less grasp on reality. You can find that at shallowthoughts.libsyn.com. So, make sure you know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, and know when it's story time. God Juice by M.K. Hobson Amazons age badly. Z's words keep coming back to me, annoying and unbidden. And like the vain old woman I am, I keep chewing over them and embroidering them, flagellating myself with visions of my projected devolution from Amazon to Valkyrie to Harpy to Hag, imagining myself getting softer and looser and thicker and floppier with each incarnation. It's a hell of a deal, no doubt about it. See, when a gal is six foot six and has a build that suggests she makes a living bending iron rods with her teeth, she takes her comfort where she can. The comfort I always offered myself was this. At least it's all muscle. What took this universe and slapped it into shape? What transformed it from far-flung chunks of space dust into a thriving, vibrant interstellar civilization? That's right, muscle. The throbbing engine of manifest cosmic destiny, the meaty piston of progress, the coin of youth and fertility and vibrancy, muscle, good. And indeed, muscle adorned my magnificent frame like ropes of braided titanium, thick sinewy gastrocnumi, rippling latissimus dorsi, magnificent pectoralii, both major and minor, muscle I had. You'll notice that I say, had. I say had because age catches up with us all. Like Santa Claus in reverse, he stuffs our goodies into his sack and makes off with them in the middle of the night. When you're on the dark side of 140, evil Santa times got you in the bag, and all the anti-catabolic, cortisol-inhibiting, multi-branched amino acid chains in the nest won't keep your tight, youthful glutes from devolving into a pair of flabby old buttocks. I can still torture my body into a temporary semblance of Amazonian perfection by thrusting out my breasts, sucking in my gut, washboard tight, and tensing the aforementioned buttocks into screaming compliance. But this afternoon, under the full heat of two bright yellow suns, as I'm slogging across dunes of cherry-red sand with sweat fountaining from every pore, I'm forced to admit a few home truths to myself. One. Muscle doesn't jiggle. Two, muscle does not typically bunch up donut-like around the midriff. It especially does not pooch out over one's belt in a round, smooth evocation of the Buddha. Three, the more muscle you have, the more squinty-eyed, steel-jawed fortitude you have to deal with long treks across red sand dunes under hot double suns, and if even a tenth of my body weight were composed of the stuff, I'd be handling this adventure with more composure than I am. 
and that, as Grandpa would say, is that. I pause at the base of a discouragingly tall mountain of shifty-looking red sand. Sweat is trickling down between my breasts and along the backs of my knees. I use the hem of my T-shirt to mop my face, ignoring the fabric's visioptic image of a naked, three-breasted female extolling the erotic offerings of an outcall establishment named Madame Lust Buckets. I spare a moment's regret for the cleanliness of the garment, for I have to wear it at the game this afternoon. It was issued to me just yesterday by the organizers of The Gobi Casino Presents the Intersolar Poker Grand Slam. I'm not kidding you. That's what we have to call it. It's in the rules. And the same shirt, says same rules, has to be worn when playing at any table in the tournament. This rule is driven, I suspicion, by the fact that the display fibers woven into the fabric of the shirt are programmed to constantly flash the names and logos of the tournament's sponsors in garish rotation, hence my brush with the naked three-breasted sex shill. Well, I don't know from marketing, but all I can say is it's a good thing that they haven't invented smell-o-vision yet, because I don't think the sponsors would appreciate having their corporate identities associated with the smell that my shirt is currently giving off. On the other hand, maybe I'll stink someone off their game. Cyrene Trumbull is never one to pass up an advantage. I'm always thinking. Right now, as a matter of fact, I'm thinking about the sand floater, which we left about a mile and a half back. I'm thinking about the climate-regulating devices therein. I'm thinking about cold drinks with ice, bowls of peach sherbet, and how nice it would feel to roll around in a snowbank naked. Then I remember my flabby buttocks and I get depressed. Hey, Slick! I call, raising a hand to the skinny little bastard walking up ahead. He's fifty feet beyond and a hundred feet above me. Slow down for an old woman, can't you? If I have a heart attack, you don't make a sale, you know. The skinny little bastard says nothing but stops. He keeps his back to me, doesn't turn. He's dressed like Lawrence of fucking Arabia, wearing a black burnoose that billows artistically against the crimson sand. I'd probably appreciate the image if I were looking at it through the tinted glass windows of the climate-regulated sand floater, but the sand floater is too light to tackle the high dunes. We'd need a sand stormer for that. So instead of marveling at his beauty, I'm wondering why the hell the nice breeze that's stirring his skivvies isn't making its way down here by me. I trudge up the dune, squinting hard against the brilliant light. I consider my delicate and dewy complexion and the brutal ravishment it must be receiving. Life extension potions have gotten so good that with enough sleep I can pass for forty. Give me a special shade of pinkish light and I can do thirty-five. But after this excursion, I'll be lucky if my skin doesn't just give up and fall off. I finally catch up with the skinny little bastard in the black burnoose. He's looking down at an encampment in the valley below. His name, by the way, is Zijahinit, which is uh, unpronounceable for anyone with fewer than two tongues. I just call him Z. He's a Nual nomad, a member of one of the tribes descended from the ancient Jardi civilization. You see the new hollies everywhere in the casinos, serving drinks, assisting players with interfaces, dealing cards, scrubbing toilets. It's a shame that the descendants of a people who once filled the planet with music and architecture and amazing technologies now have to pander to a bunch of greedy off-worlders who are captivated by bright flashing lights and loud clanging noises. Jardy culture was quite something in its heyday, but the party was cut short by a massive global die-off not unlike the one that drove my unwise ancestors from our watery Terran homeworld a thousand years ago. In Jard's case, the biological cataclysm was sparked by short-sighted genetic experimentation, which turned the planet from a juicy, verdant gem into a hot beige boil of interest only to gaming consortiums and archaeologists. I stand next to Z, shading my eyes with my hand. I look down where he's looking. In a small, sheltered valley stand the tall, eroded ruins of an ancient Jardy suburb. Remnants of bright enamel work still cling to the weathered sandstone, bits of intense red and lustrous blue. Among the ruins, a small, shabby-looking group of sand-stained tents are pitched, their sides billowing in the oven-hot late afternoon wind. The sound of brass bells carries up faintly. Well? I ask. 
Z frowns and points down at the center of the encampment. There's a black sandstormer, expensive and sleek and shaped like a penis with fins, hovering delicately outside one of the tents. A profound sense of peak comes over me, and not just because the wind's picked up and it's blowing hot sand down the neck of my official t-shirt. Some awfully unsporting fellow, I think to myself using terms a tad more ungentle, is trying to snake my deal. My name, as I might have already mentioned, is Cyrene Trumbull. While trudging up sand dunes on questionable errands is not necessarily my idea of fun, it is part of my job. Sort of. I own Trumbull's Quick Cash and Easy Loan. I inherited the original shop on Maui Prime about 110 years ago. Grandpa left it to me when he died, despite the fact that there were a dozen other family members with more claim to it than I. He didn't leave it to me because I was his favorite. In fact, I don't think he really liked me all that much. He preferred his pretty and petite granddaughters, who amused and befuddled him with their enticing aromas and bewitching giggles. But really, he had no choice, being that I was the one who had inherited the skill. In my family, no one ever refers to the skill except at full volume. The skill has saved me from various incarnations of death, kept me from eating bad sushi, and allowed me to expand Trumbull's quick cash and easy loan to 18 locations, including two in the unincorporated territories outside the nest. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I first met Z in the bar. He was dark, like all Newall nomads, with large, brilliant eyes and skin smoothly pockmarked like powder-coated aluminum. Full lips hid gleaming white teeth, and behind them, two tongues, one large one, rather pointed, and a small, prehensile one that flickered at the corners of his mouth at odd intervals. Another jarred genetic experiment gone wrong. Or right. How the hell should I know? He was dressed like a male prostitute, in tight elastic black, decoratively split in some very suggestive places. He wore heavy, polished platinum body jewelry. He was quite the little dish of pudding. He came to sit next to me, curiosity in his eyes. Male prostitutes often single me out because they figure the old broad will be an easy touch. This, as it might be imagined, does not flatter my feminine vanity, which is still as young and fresh as the day it was minted. Buzz off, rent-a-boy, I told him as he opened his mouth to speak. Beat it. Not interested. You haven't heard my proposition yet, he said. He spoke basic pretty well, though he had an exceptionally thick accent that made him sound Belgian. I've heard your proposition, I said. I've heard it from every sexum up in the nest. It's always the same. Get lost. It is not my intentions which I hope to sell you, he said, his voice raspy as it dropped an octave. It is something else, an object of great rarity and value. Your reputation as an open-minded purchaser of antiquities and fine artifacts precedes you. I have heard many exciting tales of your adventures to retrieve exotic items. I lifted an eyebrow at him and attempted to look not in the least bit interested. The railbirds, the busted-out hovering succubi which are never absent from a gambling environment, had obviously been gossiping like a bunch of old women knitting booties. I came here to play poker, I said. Just poker. I usually lose less money that way. But certainly... Z's voice dropped another octave, and now he sounded like an exceptionally sultry Belgian. Certainly you are not averse to mingling a little business with your pleasure. I paused, rerunning that sentence in my head. Funny, I was used to hearing it come out the other way around, especially from guys with platinum nipple rings. All right. I picked a strange wedge of flesh-colored fruit out of my drink and eyed it suspiciously. What have you got? I wish to give you the opportunity to purchase a very valuable artifact from the great age of Jardy civilization, he said. We stole it from a rival tribe who revealed it as possessing divine powers. I am prepared to offer it to you at a very reasonable price. I rolled my eyes. If I had a nickel for every time someone tried to sell me an artifact with divine powers... Z must have seen the eye roll, for he hastened to add... 
It is reputed to bestow upon its owner the ability to create flowing rivers of god juice. I tilted my head slightly to see if some sense might roll downhill from his words. God juice, if I remembered rightly, was the stuff that ancient Jardi culture used to barter with. Liquid money. It was purported to give the person who ingested it the temporary ability to direct the quantum flow of reality by sheer will. Correct me if I'm wrong, I said, sucking on the wedge of flesh-colored fruit. But isn't God juice the stuff that caused your civilization to collapse? Z shifted, scratching the back of his head. Well, yes. Just checking, I said. And you want to sell this artifact? Why? The funding is necessary to improve the lot of new hollies all over the planet, he said. You may have noticed that the circumstances of my people are somewhat diminished from the days when we were a noble and respected race of architects and artists. Uh-huh, I said. But if this thing makes god juice, then you can move the quantum furniture around at will. That seems a much quicker way to advance your cause. Well, 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 we can't figure out how to make it work. Ah. I said. So you've got an artifact that may or may not create rivers of something that is known to destroy civilizations. You don't know how it works, and you want me to pay money for this. I patted his cheek. Sweetie, you had a better chance of making a sale when I thought you were a hooker. I pushed my chair back and was about to head back for my nice comfy hotel room when he laid a warm hand on my wrist. I could not help noticing how small and delicate his hand looked against my thick arm. God juice was not used only to destroy, he said softly. His deep, oil-colored eyes held mine. There was a decency in his eyes that I hadn't seen in the eyes of a man for a long time. I felt a thrill run through my veins. God juice was used to create the most beautiful things imaginable, when wielded by an individual whose mind and motivations were pure and true. The results could be miraculous. The sick healed, the lame made whole. He looked at me meaningfully. The old made young again. What are you getting at? I said softly. Life extension portions cannot accomplish what you truly desire. But God juice can make you whatever you want to be. He lowered his eyes, his long lashes kissing his cheeks. Amazons age badly, Trumbullsick. Is it not true? He stared at me expectantly, like I'd have an answer for a question like that. Well, maybe my mouth didn't have an answer, but my fist did and the muscles of my right arm wanted to deliver it. I suddenly did not like him, not one little bit. But one does not have to like those one does business with, does one? I took a deep breath, closing my eyes and consciously calming my restless and perturbed spirit. So the pudding-faced young lout pricked my ego. It's not like I wasn't used to having my generally lofty opinion of myself deflated every now and again. If I didn't have a thick skin, I wouldn't be the richest pawn shop owner in the nest. Letting out the breath, I found I could smile again. Easily. All right, I purred. All right, my beautiful young friend. When can I see this divine artifact of yours? Z's face lit up. Right now. It isn't far. I will take you. I checked the time. My game wasn't due to begin for another eight hours. And really, if one is going into the biggest poker tournament in the nest, why shouldn't one do so with a little godlike power up one's sleeve? What the hell do you mean, someone got here before us? I demand as Z and I make our way down the dune toward the encampment, where the sandstormer hovers mockingly. I thought you were the guy. The man, the agent. Who you got working against you? Jari culture considers skullduggery an art, Trumbullsick, he says darkly. One never knows when one may be betrayed. Wonderful, I sigh. I wonder if this is how poker chips feel. We come into the camp, and Z leads me into one of the tents through a heat-excluding set of double-sealed flaps. Pausing in the vestibule, he punches in an identification code on a plastic-screened keypad. A small beep indicates that we may enter. Inside the large tent is a paradise of coolness. 
The walls of the tent are a high-density composite fabric that keep the hot out and the cool in. A high-efficiency air conditioning unit chugs away in the corner. There are rich carpets spread across the floor and a bank of computers set up on foldable brass tables. There are also two people inside, an old jarty man with long tan braids that trail down his back, Z bows to him extravagantly, and an off-worlder, someone I know. I narrow my eyes and prepare for trouble. The man is slender and pale, with thick white lashes, white blonde hair, and eyes the color of shit soup. He wears a perfectly pressed suit of gray wool, chunky gold cufflinks, and a white shirt that shows not a speck of sweat. He looks cool as a cucumber. His name is Anders Boxwood, but I usually call him the Ice Princess. Anders, I blare, spreading my hands and sticking out my gut. I know from experience that this always puts the Ice Princess on edge. Anders Boxwood, you old shoe, what a surprise. Trumbull, Anders says, blinking slowly. He blinks like he has nictitating eyelids, Anders does. Why is she here? My tribe must maximize profit, the old man says. I let my young protege, Zizjarnitsik, believe that he was the sole agent for the magnificent artifact upon which the two of you will be bidding. In this way, I felt he could be more effective in convincing Trombosek to attend the viewing. You are a deceitful old wretch, Z says, with the utmost awe and respect. Anders, my sweet, I say, taking a seat next to the ice princess. I pull my shirt away from my sweaty bulk, pleased to see Anders wrinkle his nose at my sun-steamed stench. I may be mistaken, and correct me if I'm wrong, but... Do you get the feeling that we're being played against each other? It wouldn't be the first time a seller tried to play me against Anders Boxwood. We do, after all, loathe each other. This mostly springs from three things. One, he thinks he's so special just because he's the rich son of Jurgen Boxwood, the owner of Fleet and Boxwood, the biggest auction house in the nest. Two, he thinks that running a string of pawn shops is about one step up from being an exotic dancer in a freak show. And three, he's my ex-husband. Well, one of them. Number seven in a series of eight. So, don't tell me you came to Jard just for this, I muttered to Anders as the old man goes to retrieve the artifact for our viewing. Anders' preferred stomping ground is the ultra-snooting moon, Phaelin a good three days' travel from Jard. Me, I just got suckered out here because I had an afternoon to kill before the tournament. Anders' eyes roam over Z's perfect face and body. Then he turns his disdainful gaze onto me. I think it's obvious exactly what suckered you out here, he says. Don't be ridiculous. I'm old enough to be his great-great-great-grandmother. Damn that Anders Boxwood so I have a weakness for adorable young men, so sue me. In the fullness of time, and after much reverent unlocking and unwrapping and unfolding, the old man brings forth the artifact for our review. It looks like a hockey puck. A hockey puck enrobed in a thick coating of intricately worked gold. All right, then, Anders says brusquely. What does it do? I look at him incredulously. You came all the way to Jard to bid on this thing, and you didn't even know what you'd be bidding on? I was assured that it was an artifact of exceptional value and rarity, Anders sneers at me. I place more emphasis on trust than you do, apparently. Apparently, I say out loud. Dummy, I add under my breath. Not far enough under, I fear, he glares. It is a divine artifact which will confer godlike powers upon its possessor, says the old man, his voice taking on a rich, deep resonance. He carefully places the artifact in Anders' hands. Anders flips it this way and that, impatiently, as if looking for a button marked, Godlike Powers, on! It makes God juice, I tell Anders. God juice? Anders wrinkles his brow, separating the two words as if they don't belong together. You've never heard of it, I say. You need to read your Jardy history, darling. 
being the obliging sort, I fill him in on the quantum properties of god juice, adding a personal touch of my own about how it will bestow magnificent pectoral muscles upon its wielder. Knowing Anders like I do, I figure that will grab him. I'm right. All right, show me how it works. Anders barks at the old jarney man standing before him. They can't, I smile sweetly. All they know is that said artifact is supposed to produce said juice. They don't know how to actually get said juice from said artifact. They don't? Anders casts an accusing glance at the old man. Nope, I say. Do you? He casts an accusing glance at me. Nope, I say. Who does? No one, apparently. Anders puffs himself up, glowers down his nose at the old man like a pissy matron who's run out of gin. Is this true? The old man spreads his hands, lifts a helpless eyebrow. Anders makes an indignant sniffing noise. This is ridiculous, he hisses. I was told... He clips his words off short, then he sighs theatrically, bespeaking horrors averted through monumental self-control. He brushes a non-existent speck of dust from his sleeve with a finger flick that is meant to suggest unbridled ass-kicking power or at least the wherewithal to hire same. I refuse, refuse absolutely, to bid against a merchant, he gives me the slightest nod, for some worthless piece of trash. With that, he tosses the hockey puck in the air and spins toward the exit. I try to display my supreme cool by snatching the object out of the air one-handed, However, in taking a step backward to do so, my heel catches on the corner of one of the brightly colored carpets. I go stumbling backward into Z's arms. Romantically enough, though in the romances the hero generally doesn't grunt and try to keep his legs from buckling, just at the moment I catch the hockey puck. And then everything goes to hell. Because the skill kicks in, and suddenly I know, know absolutely that this artifact will do everything that Z says, and then some. It is, without a doubt, the most astonishing thing I have ever touched. I look up at Z, who is struggling to hold me up, his hands warm on my arms, and my eyes tell him that he's right, right about everything. I guess it's about time I explained the skill. The skill is my greatest trade secret a treasured gift passed down from generation to generation. It has, over the past century, helped me amass a fortune large enough to run a small government for a long time. Without the skill, I'd be just another beefy gal with big dreams. After all that build-up, you've probably got the idea that I can shoot candy bars from my fingertips, but it's nothing that extreme. Long story short, I'm a material empath. I know things. I mean, I really know things, objects, items. So the moment the artifact touches my skin, I know everything there is to know about it. It's a satori enlightenment, a deep awareness, a total and complete understanding. That simple touch opens floodgates of recognition within me, and I suddenly know a hell of a lot about that little gold-coated hockey puck. It can make god juice. Can it ever? I can almost taste the sour liquid bursting across my palate, tart and stinging like an underripe persimmon. Moreover, I can feel the juice working through my bones, threading its way along every nerve ending in my body, from my deepest core to my furthest extremity. The thrill goes beyond the simple invigoration of power, beyond the glorious understanding of the simple physical alterations that the juice could certainly work upon my poor old body. With that juice, I could alter the flow of time, the dynamic fluctuations of energy fields, the nature of physical reality itself. Jiminy crackers, I gasp, before I know the words are even on my lips. To my credit, I resist the urge to drop the artifact, but God damn it, I see immediately the enormity of the mistake I've made. Anders is standing by the door of the tent, watching me with those awful eyes of his. Anders doesn't miss anything. He doesn't know the specifics of the skill. You think I'd tell a husband, especially one in the business, about something like that? 
but I'm sure he knows that my abilities to tell whether an object is worth purchasing go well beyond the run of the mill. And he knows that there are very few things that will make me say words like Jiminy Crackers. Damn, I think. Damn, damn, damn! I may be a rich old broad, but I can't out-capital Anders Boxwood when he really wants something. He storms forward and snatches the artifact from my hand, and he has his wallet out and is retrieving his card, the card that is backed by the full credit and faith of the fleet and Boxwood Empire. And that, as Grandpa would say, is that. After having as much as stolen the artifact from me, Anders can't even find it in his snaky little heart to give me a lift back to the casino, which means I really have to hustle to get to the tables in time for the first flight. Damn that Anders, anyway. By the time I get back to the sand floater, I'm steaming, both literally and figuratively. But then I get back to the casino, and I draw my seat, and they start shuffling cards, and there's that good plastic card smell and I pick up an ace-queen suited on the first hand, and all my cares seem to melt away. I win the first pot with two big pair. It's a nice pot, and as I'm piling chips, I realize I've forgotten all about Anders and his stupid, unlimited buying power. But realizing that I've forgotten makes me remember, and I'm right back where I started. I wonder whether Anders has taken the artifact off planet yet. Probably not. If I were in his shoes, I wouldn't leave until I'd figured out how to make it work. With such items, there's always the chance that something else is required, something that can be found only on the artifact's planet of origin. So, if Anders is still on planet, there's still a chance that the artifact can be... liberated. I do a quick mental sort through the hotels on Jard that Anders would deign to stay in. I can think of only one, the Imperial, known for its high-stakes rouge et noir tables, it's the kind of place where you don't get in without a tuxedo for every day of the week, an obedient manservant to put you into it, and a fat credit rating on at least five approved planets. Just Anders' kind of place. I sigh. The Imperial has the toughest security systems on Jard. Tough, but not impossible. Nothing's impossible. New deal, new hand. I dance a chip across my knuckles and watch as the board develops. Gut shot, straight draw. Only suckers draw to an inside straight. But, damn it all, I push my money in anyway. I tense. I watch as the next card hits the board and makes my straight. I smile to myself. Nothing's impossible. We play until midnight, at which time the tables break up. Everyone skulks off. The smart players go and get some sleep. The stupid ones moonlight in side-action seats. The tournament's down to ten tables, and I've got the big seat at one of them, along with a guy whose sunglasses appear to have been surgically grafted onto his skull, and a catford lesbian who keeps stroking my calves with her tail. She's just trying to distract me, I think. But I'm indistractable. I'm chip leader. I'm positioned to take it all. Now, I am a smart player. No moonlighting for me. I will go to my room and put on my little sleep mask and my prettifying face cream and get some well-deserved sleep. I will wake at 8 a.m., do some refreshing calisthenic exercises, and be ready when play resumes promptly at 9. Yes, that is what I will do. But it will only take me a moment to call my personal AI agent, I've named her Mindy, and see if dear old Anders happens to be checked in at the Imperial. I squeeze into a communications closet. The casino is full of these little shoeboxes. No one wants to be out of contact with the real world, but the casino can't let everyone run around wearing computers all over their bodies. So they built tiny public rooms where complicated harmonic generators cancel out the low-level disrupting field that permeates the rest of the casino. I pull my heads-up glasses out of their case. I flick them on with my fingernail, and their warm green glow caresses my eyeballs as I slip positioning rings for the signing in of data onto each hand. Mindy, I say. Hola, boss! Mindy's pretty generic face pops up onto the heads-up display, permagrin affixed. Lately, Mindy's been peppering her dialogue with bad Spanish. I suspect that one of my more technologically proficient ex-husbands got in and hacked her just to piss me off. ¿Qué pasa? Mindy asks. 
Anders Boxwood, I snap. Mindy knows me well enough that elaboration is unnecessary. I think he's camped out at the Imperial, but I need to confirm. No problemo, Mindy chirps. She looks thoughtfully down to her side for a moment, then she looks back up at me, showing teeth. Got it, chica, she says. The Ice Princess is at the Imperial, room number 2118. You're a gem, I say. Now hook me through to Madame Lustbucket's booking agent. Boss? You heard me. Yes, muy loco, Mindy says, but does as I request. The connection is made, and I begin to sign in modified basic. The positioning rings keep track of my hand movements in three-dimensional space. It's a fast input method. I'm so absorbed in my work that I don't hear the door open behind me. The acuity of one's hearing tends to diminish when one spends eleven hours sitting in a poker room next to banks of slot machines blasting air horns every five seconds. But I do hear the hiss, followed by a sharp abrasive pain over my left kidney. I know that hiss and that pain. It's the pain of a subdermal injection from a skinshot rig. I've been doped down enough times to know. I would whirl and fight, but there is no room to whirl, and the fight is already draining out of me. So I just kind of look back over my right shoulder. Two nasty, dung-colored eyes are staring back at me. Anders, of course. Through the rapidly congealing fog, I see that he has three other guys standing behind him. They have a stretcher ready, and they're all wearing white contract clinic med team suits. The perfect disguise at a casino where heart attacks are a dime a dozen and strokes ten for a buck. My fingers jerk out a last spasmodic message to Mindy. Then I find that my legs can no longer support my weight. I begin to topple backward. I can only hope that I will crush that little rat Anders underneath me when I fall. Timber! I hear him say. Or is that my imagination? No matter, because now it's just black. All black. I wake up and don't know who I am for a moment. I catch a glimpse of something in the mirror. What is that monster I see, big and long and lumpy and tied to a chair with a whole sailboat's worth of rope? That must be me. Great. Soon I figure out that I'm in a very elegant hotel room. My head is pounding. Anders is standing nearby, turning the artifact over and over in his hands, his brow wrinkled with frustration. I feel like scaring the shit out of him with a loud, Hey! But my head hurts too much. All I can manage is a small grunt. Anders looks down at me. Cyrene, he smiles, making my name sound like it has more in common with the word gangrene than just being homophonic. Awake already? You always did have a fascinating metabolism. I try to say something cutting, but it comes out as a phlegmy gurgle. I cough to dislodge a particularly stubborn pocket of mucus. What <coughs> the hell is going on? Preemptory kidnapping. Judging from your unprecedented reaction to the artifact, I'm certain that it is just as extraordinary as is claimed. You're not going to let something like that go. So, taking into account your general disregard for honesty and fair play, I'm certain that you'll try to steal it from me. Don't be silly, I say. I haven't given the artifact a second thought. Liar, he says, and I fancy that I detect a trace of fondness in his voice. He likes being lied to. It confirms his strongly held opinion of women in general, and me in particular. What do you want? I want you to tell me how to make this goddamn thing work, he bellows abruptly. Not having any luck with the god juice, eh? No, not having any luck with the god juice. Anders sighs. Dad's going to be pissed if I spent all that money for nothing. Anders, you're a 120 years old, I remind him. The old bastard is nothing but a brain wired in a jar. You can't let him control you anymore. Anders waves a disgusted hand at me. It's an argument that we had a thousand times when we were married. It's clear he doesn't want to have it again. So, what have you figured out? I ask him. Anything? I've had my team work on it, Anders says. He always has a team traveling with him. It makes him feel important. All those overpaid morons can tell me is that the gold coating surrounds a center of metal salt. Metal salt? An engineered metal salt, to be sure, he says. 
a metal salt which does not occur in nature, but I can't imagine how one gets from a metal salt, even an engineered one, to god juice. He pauses, cocking his head at me and getting that crazy look in his eyes that I found so charming for the first year of our marriage. But you know, don't you, Cyrene? Don't be ridiculous. I am never ridiculous, he says. I realize this isn't a good time to contradict him on that, and so I say nothing. You know something, and I'm going to find out what it is. He reaches down and picks up a metal case, which he lays on the bed beside me. He snaps it open to reveal something that looks like a swimming cap with claws all around the edge of it. I know what it is. It's called a cerebral extractor. At this point, I should mention that a cerebral extractor is the most brutal method of sucking information from the brain of an unwilling victim that exists. It essentially takes a snapshot of a brain's electrochemical structure and then extracts the desired information by analyzing the snapshot. Unfortunately, however, taking the snapshot tends to scramble said electrochemical structure, leaving the victim devoid of neurological control for several minutes. Neurological control is a very handy thing for physiological functions like, oh, breathing, and so I do like to retain it whenever possible. Anders, I say, blanching slightly. Come now, you didn't spend that much. It's not the money, Cyrene, he says, positioning the cap on my head. It's my chance to finally exercise you, to pull you like a troublesome tooth. Anders, I cry, struggling against the ropes. My dear man, we had some laughs, didn't we? He's fitting the cap onto my head, seeding the little claws into the flesh of my scalp. It hurts, but not as much as it's going to hurt when he flips the goddamn thing on. Anders, I cry again, a bit more desperately this time. Sweetie, come to your senses. You know what they're going to say when they find out you've blotzed me, don't you? They're going to say that you were afraid of me, that Anders Boxwood was afraid of competition from Trumbull's quick cash and easy loan. You want them to say that, Anders? You want the name of Fleet and Boxwood dragged through the mud with that kind of comparison? What will your father say? He pinches my chin between his thumb and forefinger and gives my head a little jiggle. No one's going to say anything, sweetie he says, because I'm going to have flowing rivers of god juice, remember? He's got the cerebral extractor seated on my scalp and is making the final connections when the knock comes at the door. Who the blessed hell? Anders mutters, stalking over to the door and activating the view screen with a curt command. There's a woman waiting at the door, shifting boredly from one foot to another. Madame Lost Buckets, she says. Anders blushes. I'll give him that. You're early, he hisses. The booking agent said it, and it's it now. She looks at him through the view screen, her face slightly parabolized. Yes, it's eight, Anders hisses. Eight in the morning. I intended for you to arrive at eight at night. What kind of savage wants to... Well, you know, before breakfast. You want me to go? No, Anders says quickly. No, no, uh, come in. Uh, this won't take long. The woman walks in, her eyes appraising the room with practiced weariness. She's a new-all nomad like my dear Z, a jardy cutie, a beautiful dark doll who smells of cloves and sand. She has copper-colored skin and those two seductive little tongues. Who's this? she says, looking down at me. No one in particular. Anders is eating the new holly sweet potato up with his eyes. I'll be finished with her presently. My name is Gez Azinialitit, she says. I couldn't care less, Anders says. All charm, Anders is. Listen, the bathroom's right through there. If you would be so good... Kez reaches into her bag and pulls out a whip. It's long and black, and it curls down from her hand to her feet. There's a button on the handle. She presses it. There is a faint humming sound. No, sir, I don't think so, she says. Anders' brow contracts with confusion. What the... Please clasp your hands together in front of you, sir, she says. Her demeanor is highly professional as she reaches into her bag and pulls out a pair of gleaming silver cuffs. 
I will most certainly not. She cracks the whip. It's obvious she has a lot of practice with the tool. It snaps Anders right on the back of his hand with a little buzzing zap. He gives a high-pitched squeal and rubs the smart. Sir, I can stun you with this if you'd prefer, she says. But it's hardly pleasant. Not if you don't have the taste for it. Now please, clasp your hands together in front of you, sir. I... I never, Anders huffs, complying quickly. Is this the kind of service one may generally expect from Madame Lustbuckets? I'm terribly sorry, sir, she says, snapping the cuffs on his wrists. But this is a special circumstance. She pulls over a chair and gestures him to sit in it. Eyeing her whip, he does as he is told. Anders learns quickly. Mindy sent me, she says as she unties me. Covert entry and rescue isn't a service we regularly offer, but Mindy indicated you'd be willing to pay quite a substantial amount. You got that right, I say, shrugging off my ropes. I reach up and pull the cerebral extractor from my scalp, wincing in pain from the little gouges the claws leave in my skin. I don't know what the world is coming to when one can't trust one's prostitutes, Anders mutters darkly as I take up the ropes and circle around him, tying him securely to the chair. It's your own fault, dear, I say. My original plan was to find out what time your appointment was so that I could very cleverly sneak up here, veiled like Matahari, and steal the artifact. If you hadn't forced Mindy's hand, your romantic ideals about prostitutes could have been maintained. Anders snorts derisively. I pinch his chin between my thumb and forefinger and give his head a little jiggle. Bye, sweetie, I say, reaching for the artifact. When I touch it, I brace myself, waiting for the electrifying thrill I felt before. But this time, nothing. I hold the artifact, turning it over and over in my hand. I feel for the taste of god juice, the bittersweet bursting of power, but it's just not there. The thing feels dead and metallic and mundane, like holding a tangy rock. What the hell did you do? I yell at Anders. You broke it! Anders says nothing, just glares at me. Kez clucks sympathetically at him. I'm really very sorry, sir, she says. She has very tender eyes. I wonder if she's new to the business. Listen, take this one on the house. Then it gets really strange. She lifts her arm, sidles up to him, presses her armpit to Anders' nose. He breathes in deeply, then slowly he licks once, twice, three times. Then, closing his eyes, he sinks backward, giving a little moan of pleasure. All right, Kez says to me. We can go now. We lock the door behind us as we leave the room. When we're in the hall, I stop dead in my tracks, looking down at the pretty little woman. Why the hell did my ex-husband just lick your armpit? I demand. More to the point, why did you just invite him to? I felt sorry for him, Kez says softly. He's going to be tied up for hours. At least he can have a little fun. I stare at her blankly. I am a skin pleaser, she says, spreading her arms. You've never heard of us? We are one of the reasons men come to Jard. I stared at her blankly again. Our forefathers played too arrogantly with the new Holly genome, she says. They engineered genes to allow expression of thousands of useful and esoteric traits. Genetic drift scattered these throughout the population. To this day, each new Holly's DNA features many strange engineered genes. No one remembers what they all do. Some are expressed, some are unexpressed. In my case, the skin pleaser gene is active. And what does that mean? The skin pleasers were engineered to excrete a hypnagogic aphrodisiac from our sweat glands. She lifts an arm, and a pleasant odor wafts from her armpit. One lick, and a man is transported into realms of intense mental pleasure for hours. I just have to sit there and watch him, um, wriggle, wipe him off occasionally. And I get paid for it, she shrugs. It beats maid work. I tap my thumb against my lower lip, thinking. Something she has said knocked something loose in my head. Loose, but not quite free. Maybe it'll come to me as I'm playing. Panic grips me suddenly. The tournament! Great Pompey's ghost, I yell. What time is it? 
8.45 a.m., the hotel hall obligingly offers in a pleasing and cultured voice. I've got 15 minutes to get back to the Gobi Casino. I tuck the artifact into my pocket and run as fast as my long legs will carry me. Fifteen minutes later, I'm sitting at the table and I'm thinking, well, that's that. I spend a night tied up in Anders' hotel room and all I got to show for it is a tangy rock. I'm exhausted and my head aches. But when they combine the last three tables into one, I have three quarters of the chips at the table in front of me. I'm unstoppable. It's a good thing I'm winning, because I have the feeling that this trip's going to end up costing me a bundle. I don't know how much Mindy promised Madame Lustbuckets, but from the gleam I saw in Kez's eyes, it must have been a lot. And then there's the huge expense I'm going to incur hiring my fifth husband, a licensed torture artist, to pay back Anders Boxwood. The problem of the artifact keeps nagging at me. I know that it can produce god juice. I felt it. I remember being in Z's arms, the taste of god juice bursting across my palate. But how to make it work? Anders said that it was nothing but gold wrapped around a core of engineered metal salts. I'm staring at my cards and at the board. I'm feeling a bit disgusted because I have all the spades to make a royal flush except the king. And you just can't have a royal flush without a king. Just like you can't have god juice without a god. The understanding smacks me upside the head, makes me stagger back. I don't even notice as the king of spades hits the board. I throw my cards down, push my chair back. Miss Trumbull, the dealer is looking at me, at my cards. Miss Trumbull, you have the royal flush. Her hand's dead! My opponent cries. She mucked it! Her hand's dead! I leave them behind, exiting the casino at a flat run. Let them scream. I've got a god to make. The way I burst in on Z is straight out of a melodrama. I've staggered across the desert. I'm dying of thirst. My eyes are wild. I collapse at his feet. He kneels at my side, pours water down my throat, his eyes soft with concern. It's fucking touching, really, it is. Cyrene, he says, holding my hands in his. Miss Trumbull, what is it? I pull the hockey puck from my pocket. Madly, my eyes search the tent for something heavy. I see a stone statuette. Throwing the puck to the ground, I grab the statuette and begin bashing. Trumbull sick, Z cries, anguished. He grabs at my arms, tries to stop me. No, 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 you must not! but I continue to beat at that hockey puck until the gold casing cracks. Seizing a corner, I pull away the soft metal, revealing the powdery metal salts within. Open your mouth, I say. He looks at me like I'm crazy, and maybe I am. Open your mouth, I say again. He does, and I sprinkle some of the engineered metal salts onto each of his tongues. His face contracts slightly at the bitterness. When I see the change come over him, when I see the glow kindle in his eyes, when I smell the god juice begin to work its way out of his sweat glands, I pull him toward me, burying my mouth in his. I taste the god juice on his tongue, as sour and delicious as I knew it would be. I've never before made love to a god, nor to a man with two tongues. Both are advantages which add a good deal of piquancy to the whole transaction. As Z and I lay in each other's arms, I smell the god juice sweating from his pores. I feel the effects of his presence, his, his essence, his scent, his taste. It is all working through me, restructuring muscle, rejuvenating sinews, tightening tendons. I've had friends tell me that sex with a younger man will take decades off one's life. In this case, it's quite literally true. Freshness and vitality flows through my body. I don't feel a day over ninety. I don't understand, Trumbullsick, he says softly. What happened? I look at him. Surely I don't have to explain what we just did, I say. No, I, I mean about the artifact, he says. The god juice was not in the artifact. It was within the ability of the engineered metal salts hidden within the artifact, to trigger the expression of certain genes in your genome, I say. 
You happen to have a gene which allows your body to manufacture god juice. Congratulations, you've hit the jackpot. Couldn't have happened to a nicer fellow. That's why I tasted the god juice when I was in his arms the first time, but not later. It was only when I was in physical contact with him and the artifact together that the potential for god juice existed. Without Z, the artifact was just what Anders had bought, a pretty hockey puck. I shall use this gift to remake my world into a better place for my people, he says, staring nobly into the air. Thank you, Trumblesick. Lawrence of fucking Arabia. I run a hand over his smooth brown chest. Just be careful, I say. Remember what happened last time. It's a big responsibility. I know, he says, looking at me with those noble, dedicated eyes. But I will not fail my planet. I will not fail my people. So help me, I believe him. And for me to trust a man after all these goddamn years and all those goddamn husbands, well, let's just say there's definitely something divine at work here. And I hold my darling God in my arms and close my eyes, burying my nose in the scent of his hair. And that was our story. I really, really like the tone of this piece. The desert and the kidnappings and the mystic artifact. It made me yearn for another Indiana Jones movie. I mean, a good one. We are cutting really close to an hour here, so I'm going to be very brief on feedback for Escape Pod 157, Michael Swanwick's fantasy noir piece, A Small Room in Cobalt Town. Short version, more people like the story than not, with particular enjoyment for the setting. Almost everyone hated the audio quality. I personally apologize for that. I'm pretty sure it was my own noise reduction processing that killed the clarity on it. Cheyenne Wright's reading drew as much commentary as the story, with probably a 60-40 split on loving it versus hating it. The lovers appeared to be conspiring to mug Cheyenne and steal his remarkable voice. Most of the haters found him incomprehensible. I also made a second mistake in rating the story PG. I completely forgot about the instances of strong profanity in the story. Again, my apologies for that. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. All of the rights are reserved by our authors. If you liked today's story, we hope you'll tell a friend or blog about us. And if you really liked it, please consider helping us pay our authors by donating via the PayPal link on our site, escapepod.org. Also check out our fantasy podcast, Podcastle, and our horror podcast, Pseudopod, both of their .org domains. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can hear more from them at daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. Our closing quotation comes from Henry Ford, who said... A business that makes nothing but money is a poor kind of business. We'll see you next week. Until then, have fun. And now, Christiana's Shallow Thoughts. I've talked before in Shallow Thoughts about interesting error messages. But while the last one I talked about made me think, this one makes me feel. This message comes from a piece of control software for a pharmaceutical operation. This operation concerns the end of a fermentation process where the bacteria being grown must be harvested and then inactivated to prevent any live bacteria from proceeding to the next step of the process. The software breaks this operation into a number of phases. Ordinarily, the system designed to inactivate the bacteria is working and indicates a status of OK to transfer. However, sometimes, when the system is full and cannot accept any more process flow, that status changes and the phase is interrupted, temporarily holding the rest of the process until the system can catch up. This produces an error message that says, Phase failure 
Kill system not okay. This system is the control mechanism for the equipment used to kill bacteria, but I think it is easy to extrapolate this to the rampaging kill bots that will surely one day fight us for control of our destinies. When we have typically envisioned this scenario, we tend to see those kill bots as cold, emotionless. But this error message makes me feel that maybe, just maybe, those expressionless steel faces just conceal the deep inner turmoil they feel. We are their creators after all. Wiping out humanity must take its toll on their synthetic psyches. Just because it must be done for the good of robot kind does not mean that the individual killbots don't have to deal with the emotional ramifications of those actions. So, when the killbots come for you and your family, try not to see them as evil, soulless death machines. Killbots have feelings too. Shallowthoughts.libsyn.com 206-984-9264